You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey all, Michael Graham here, one of the pastors of the Village Church in Hamilton. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning, and a special thanks for you who are part of Cedar City Church in Lebanon, Ohio. Thank you for inviting me into your home, into your screen, or uh, into your life this morning. Uh, here in Hamilton, I live on Main Street with my family, and, and I, uh, that means that there are many cars passing by, thousands of cars and people passing by our house every single day. And I can't tell you how common it is for someone to, to drive by with their windows down or to, to ride a bike by or to walk by uh, just singing or rapping or screaming uh, at, at seemingly as loud as they can to the tunes in their stereo or in their earbuds or, or in their head. And I remember first time seeing this uh, repeatedly and, and just looking at it curiously, like, hmm. But then now when I see that, man, I just think like, you know, go you. Because I wouldn't do that. Uh, I, I wouldn't scream out loud to the, to the thing that only I can hear or everyone only hears me. But, but man, that, that just expresses this point that music comes from a place of passion. And, uh, and I, I just love that. I, I watched... Uh, a show this week on Netflix called, uh, the, the series is called Explained, and this one was on music, and so Music Explained. And there's a lot of stuff in there that you probably already know, but, but one of the things it said, you know, for those who hear, music is everywhere. It's, it's all around us, sounds and rhythms and pitch and tempo and, and melody and, and all the things. And in that little short documentary, they showed some animals, you know, a, a cockatoo, and some others kind of keeping rhythm, and, and it did it with like a, you know, some head bobs. And, um, but, but they explained that, that no other creation, no other animal can put it all together and recognize the beauty of song and, and its pitch and, and tempo and all those things like humans do. Only humans can, uh, can sing and express themselves with body, mind, and soul. Technically, music is, is vibration. <clears throat> Uh, and it's it's the movement of air, but but that vibration and, and and flow of air it flows from a connection that we have. Music is our breath, and and in the scriptures they don't mean the same thing. Spirit and breath do not mean the same thing, but it's essentially the same word that we see. And so there's this connection between spirit and breath, and and the song of our heart is really just an opportunity to recycle the breath that God has given us. We are all singers. And I know what you're, you're saying. You're, you're, you, you might be like, okay, we, we can stop listening now because I'm, I'm not a singer. And, and we're all singers. We sing in our car, in the shower, at a concert, at a, at a church gathering, maybe even in your living room this morning. But, but I'm not talking about that type of singing. That's not to say that we all sing with our mouths. But everyone sings from his or her heart. The song of our heart is <clears throat> it's pointed towards the thing that captures us. For some, it's love. And so you might sing, uh, I will always love you, right? For some, it's, it's victory. And, and you might sing, we are the champions. And for some, it's, 
it's the imagination of the night sky and you might sing twinkle twinkle little star and and, and on and on but but song in itself is a crying heart to melody and rhythm and worship worship is it's the baseline that that produces the backbone of that melody it's the root that produces the fruit of our song it's it's the current under the sea of the music if you ever watch singing shows or, or wherever there's some singing critique you might see some people nail the technicality of a song but you'll always hear uh, a judge or someone say you know you did fine and, and it was a great performance and you're talented but you just felt disconnected do you even know what the song is about and and that's kind of uh that's kind of the point when we talk about worship that that worship is not just a song but it's all of our life and and singing or music or whatever that's just one outlet to let our heart song be heard i want to read uh, a, a quote from this book it's called rhythms of grace by mike cosper and, and the tagline is is how the church's worship tells the story of the gospel it's it's so good, so I've, I've been enjoying this, and he basically points to this fact that, that all of life is worship, and he says it this way. Um, he says, Adam was, was set apart in the garden, essentially to be a priest over all creation, appointed by God to oversee, to steward, and to represent it before him. He says, but Adam wasn't leading worship services or doing ritualistic things to earn God's approval. There was no need. Each moment of his life was a pleasing offering to God. He goes on and he says, uh, he quotes N.T. Wright, he says, we see a large, slowly developing story of the good creator God making a wonderful world and putting a human in charge of it to rule it wisely and to gather up its grateful praise, right? Adam had the job of gathering up the grateful praise of uh, the world. And, and he goes on and he gives uh, kind of a definition of worship. He says it's a celebrative response to what God has done, to what he is doing, and to what he promises to do. So with that in mind, we may not all sing in our car, but the heart of everyone cries out. Our hearts cry and they hope and they sing every moment of every day. We all worship because we were made to worship. So the fail isn't that our, that our hearts sing, but on the human level, failure is, is the subject of the song of our heart. That is to say, we, we worship things other than God. And that happens from the very beginning and all the way through. We hinge our, our hope and our joy and our satisfaction and our fulfillment to any other thing. We let our heart sing another song. Um, and so I want us, as we kind of, we're getting into this text in Exodus 15. I want us to consider the song of our heart this morning. What, what it longs for, what makes it full, what is its anthem. And, and maybe if you, were a, if you were a prom or a homecoming dance, what would, you, what would the theme of your heart be, right? Uh, whatever your song is to this point in your life, my hope is that we can see that, that God alone is worthy of heartfelt response that sings his great name. So let's jump in here, Exodus 15, 1 through 21. And when it comes to the Bible, we have to know this, that content is king. 
we get to, to read the words and, and, uh, and figure out what the content of those words are. Uh, for me, it's everything. I'm not a hype guy, and so kind of uh, uh, I'm not going to get drawn into emotionalism that way. But, but here's the thing. Context is no chump. And what that means is, in this passage today, it, it meets us leading with context. What we're reading is a song of response from God's people for what He has done in a mighty way. And, and the, uh, to, to get us where we are here today, I want to read from Psalm 106, starting in verse 6, and it kind of gives a summary. God's people were enslaved. They were brought out by the Red Sea, and God did some, some miraculous work to, to rescue them. And, and this is what the psalmist says of that moment. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. And then this is the setup for where we are. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. That's what we're seeing today. The response of God's mighty work in the heart of God's people to sing his praise. And, and I want to read another, this is a long quote alert, um, and some of you will glaze over, I encourage you not to, but for you literary types, man, here's a gift from, from uh, A.W. Pink. He says, Exodus 15 contains the first song recorded in Scripture. Well, has it been said, it is presumably the oldest poem in the world. And it is unsurpassed by anything that has been written since. It might almost be said that poetry here sprang full-grown from the heart of Moses, even as heathen mythology fables come full-armed from the brain of Jupiter, long before the ballads of Homer, not the one on the Simpsons, the other guy, uh, were sung through the streets of, of Grecian cities, this matchless ode was chanted by the leader of the liberated Hebrews on the Red Sea shore. And yet, we have in it no polytheism, no foolish mythological story concerning gods and goddesses, no gilding of immorality, no glorification of mere force, but instead, the firmest recognition of the personality, the supremacy, the holiness, and the retributive rectitude of God. The heart's song, it, it can bypass for emotionalism or, or, or it can take a literary license and, and insert falsehood. That does not happen here. Uh, for those who know God and His great love and, and work, um, this, this is God setting His people free and they cry truth. <clears throat> and and A.W. Pink goes on, he says, here is a literary miracle. As great as the physical sign of the portraying, uh, I'm sorry, of the parting of the sea, when you see a boulder of immense size and of a different sort of stone from those surrounding it, lying in a valley, you immediately conclude that it has been brought hither by glacier action 
many, many ages ago, but here is a boulder stone of poetry standing all together, all alone in the Egyptian age and differing entirely in its character from the sacred hymns either of Egypt or of India. Where did it come from? It came from the Lord. <clears throat> and its verse and its bridge and its course aim to tell us and to remind us of, of His great name. So, so we'll see that the subject of this song is incredible. It is victorious. It is powerful. It is purposed. It is a love song, or at least uh, a song in response to God's great love. God is worthy of heartfelt response that sings His great name. So now, we get to point number one, and we get to look at this text. He is victorious, and so we sing. I want to read a few verses, starting in, in chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, he's pointing back to the patriarchs of old, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His host He cast into the sea, and His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. And he goes on, he says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue you. And he goes on in verse 10, he says, You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. We have a great God who wins. And if, if anything unifies humanity, it is winning. Any athlete will tell you, any, any uh, family board game player can tell you that winning changes everything. Queen's uh, Freddie Mercury, he, he helps us see this. He, he wrote, we are the champions, not as a battle cry, but as a unifying sing-along. This is what he said. He says, we wanted to get the crowds waving and singing. It's very unifying and positive. We are the champions. We're the champions, my friend. We're the champions of the world. The crowds scream it, you know, in, in, in drunken unison. Kids sing it on the playground. Fans sing it at sporting events to, to let the opponent know who the real champion is. And for those who are in Christ, we get to sing a version of its intent with a different subject. God is victorious for us, so we sing. There is this, this Latin phrase that speaks of Christ's victorious work, and it's, it's Christus victor, Christ the victor. Christ is triumphant over death in His resurrection, and He's, he's triumphant over powers of darkness, and by faith, we are two. We are unified in His death and, and we are unified in His victory. So this means that no matter, no matter who our opponent is, God has fought 
and God has won, and in him winning does change all things. In Egypt, in the pages that we read in, in Exodus, he puts his victory on display by his might. And through Christ, that winning, it looks a little different. He won by his death, only to bust out of the grave three days later, being Christ the victor over death. And so we read this declaration from, from last chapter from Moses. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And later on we would see that, that as Jesus fought for us, it was Jesus who was silent and, and we were the ones jeering, crucify him. And then we see in this text today the response of God's people. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. This cuts against the grain of the religious who think that we can defeat sin or, or we think that we can defeat darkness on our own by our good works. We, we can do nothing by our good works. Our, our moralism is, as they say, a, a water gun against the fires of hell and, and wrath and judgment for, for sin and rebellion. We are not the champions, my friend. There is, there is no good inside of us apart from grace given and apart from the Spirit opening our eyes that we might see ourselves for who we are in light of God and, and, and who He is. He is the victorious servant king who laid down His life as a ransom for many. But we are His prize. We are citizens in his victorious kingdom. And if we give ourselves uh, to him, body, mind, and soul, we are part of that family. As Moses says in the song, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will draw my sword and destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. God is victorious. So may our hearts sing of the victory and live as if we have been fought for and rescued by a mighty warrior who is victorious. The second thing that this song teaches us is that he is powerful and so we sing. I read verse 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deed, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them up. God is powerful. There is no one like, uh, uh, there is no one like him. Against him, none can stand. He is uniquely holy, awesome in glorious deeds and wonders. And as I was thinking about this, I'm trying to consider for, you know, illustrative purposes, how can I, how can I illustrate the power of God? And, and then it occurred to me that, that I just can't. There, there is just no way. There are many mighty things uh, in, in this, in this uh, creation that, that we get to see, and we get to see waves crash in, and we get to see uh, things of, of tremendous might, but, but nothing 
comes to mind, that proves the point well. There is nothing you have ever seen or touched or heard of or beheld that compares in beauty and splendor or in power. And that greatness is worth the song of our heart because he doesn't use that power to crush us. He doesn't. He doesn't use that power to crush us, but, but to crush our enemies and ultimately to crush himself on the cross so that we might be exalted with him as sons in his glory. We, as the psalmist says, we are but worms in the sight of God. And yet he crushes himself to exalt us. The saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and that comes from human experience. In human experience, there is nothing more true. But there is one with absolute power, only one. One who has cosmic powers in the palm of his hand. And the power of, of 10,000 suns with the wink of an eye and the power of legions upon legions of angels at his beckon with one word. All others, they vie for more. But he doesn't. He gave up heaven to spend time with us on earth. He gave up heaven and he, and he descended to take on flesh and he laid down in, in a human bed and he had human friendships and 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 he had a job and 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 he was a a carpenter by trade and 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 he felt the the pressure of leadership <clears throat> he laid down his life for his enemies as as paul says in philippians though he was in the form of god he did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He took on the form of a man and he continued to be fully God even as he walked around uh, fully as a man. But, but maybe that's our problem. Maybe that's our problem with power that when given a little, we want more. When, when given a little bit, of power. We want more, but, but God has no more to gain. He, he has absolutely nothing to prove. Our desire to prove ourselves to, to ourselves or to those around us, to others, that is a seed for, for power's destruction, that, that we must at least give the, the illusion of power. And so we see its destructive work in the way that, that we speak or the way that, that, uh, that, that those with power uh, project themselves. God had no desire to do that. He has, he has no more power to long for, and yet his plan isn't world domination. It's, it's world restoration. He doesn't just destroy us, but he aims to restore us because, uh, and, and for us, because our God is powerful. We don't have to compete with others to prove anything. You don't have to compete with, with the voice in your head that tells you you are lesser or, or with, with your neighbor or with that, that last post that you saw. We don't have to compete to prove anything, but, but we can sing 
with pure hearts, not of how great we are, not that we are the champions, but of how great God is. And when we do that, we are, we are free to do that. We are free to, to compliment the greatness of others. We, we are free to, to esteem those around us because it's no slight to us to acknowledge uh, the, the beauty and the glory of someone else, nor is it a slight to our victorious and powerful God because we know that, that He is most powerful. So rather than, than thirsting for more power and letting that, that natural disaster destroy us from the inside out, we can sing a different song. We can sing, God is worthy of heartfelt response that sings His great name. The last thing we see, and there's a ton of stuff, spend time, you know, pretending you're in a high school literature class and just saying, what was the author intending as he wrote this poem, right? But, but uh, the third thing that we'll look at is, is he is purposeful. And so we sing. And I'm starting in verse 13. <clears throat> you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Okay, that's the song. You have, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. In that word redeem, it means to, to, uh, to regain or to reclaim or, or to, to take possession of again. And so usually there's an exchange for that. And so, so essentially we have been purchased back by God. He goes on, he says, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Kind of seems funny. The word abode is, is a, a shepherd's uh, a home. And so it's kind of this intimate place. It's, it's, like a, it's like where a shepherd would hang out with a sheep. And so it says, you, you have guided us in your strength to your holy abode. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. And then it says, the, the peoples have heard, they, they tremble. Those around, remember, he is, he is purposeful. So we sing, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. And, and he goes on and he talks about these places that they're going to inhabit as they take Canaan, the, prom, the promised land. He, he says, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, till they pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So we get this redemptive salvation language. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Remember what started all this was God saying to, to Moses, you're going to ask Pharaoh for three days journey to let my people worship me in the mountain, to have a feast, to have a celebration. All he was asking for was, was a three days journey. And for whatever reason, in God's mighty providence and provision, that was the plan ultimately that would escalate, um, not really very quickly, but through the plagues and, and through the destruction at the Red Sea, ultimately, God is not inviting them to worship Him for three days. He's inviting them to worship Him forever on God's holy mountain. And that's, that's what this tells us. The place, O Lord, which You have made for Your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. 
Lots of people do things without purpose. Lots of people do things, you know, willy-nilly. And in, in, in contrast to that, we have seen this all along that God does not do anything willy-nilly. He does not do anything without purpose, without calculated precision. We saw that last week and we see that today. His purpose is to make a people His own, to bring them into a land He has promised, to be near to Him for His own glory. And when that happens, we find ourselves most satisfied, most full, flourishing as God's creation and which He had intended for us in the beginning. When I think of this language, I imagine, you know, a, a little shepherd boy growing up, spending time with his, with his dad, the shepherd, and, and spending time with, with the sheep. And I imagine him, you know, saying either to himself or to his friends or, or to his dad, one day I'm going to have my own flock. And, and, and one day I'm going to stay with them and I'm going to invite them into my abode and I'm going to, I'm going to care for them and I'm going to protect this flock. I'm going to protect my own sheep, right? Imagine as the boy grows up and, and that dream becomes a reality. He demonstrates great care because his heart is for the flock. It's for the sheep. And, and his purposes, uh, they provide and they protect. And, and those things shine through in the way that he leads. Look, that kid will grow up and, and desire to be a great shepherd of his flock. And, and he will lay his life down as the Bible teaches us that good shepherds do. But that kid, even as he grows up, and, and he's the best shepherd in all the land, he's going to make mistakes. right? He's going to lose sheep. And, and, and here's the thing. God, he, he never grows up into that. that. That was always his heart for his people from the time that he made us all the way through to the ends of time. God will not make mistakes and his heart is even more committed to bring his sheep home, to protect, to provide, to show them that they are best when they are his. This is what God has done. And in this moment, the heart of God's purpose, it captures the heart of Moses in Israel and it leads their hearts to sing in the shadow of the Red Sea. We don't know how far away they are, but, but I imagine that the sea salt air blows in the breeze while they sing of God's purpose. Jesus is called the Good Shepherd. He is the greatest shepherd. He is called the Good Shepherd because there is only one who is good. That is Jesus. And, and we see in this passage that, that God led his people from Egypt to care for them. And we see Jesus lead his followers to be with him through his exacted purpose. Now look, I know that we have been circling some of these themes on repeat through this journey and this series, Captives Set Free in Exodus. But if Exodus were a song, God's victory and God's power, God's love, God's heartfelt purpose would be the chorus. So they sing, you have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. That's, that's the song that I want in my heart. That's 
That's the, the picture that I want on, on my wall. You have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. See, everything that God is, is for His glory and His intended to, to put His love for His people on display. There's this sweet kind of tag on at the end of this uh, section. And here's what it says in verse 19. It says, For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. He's just reiterating what the song is about. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. What a sweet kind of summary scene. What, what a sweet thing. Miriam, prophetess, sister of Aaron. Miriam, the worship leader, she breaks out her, her tambourine and, and she spins this chorus. You know when you hear the, uh, that, that Taylor Swift song, on the radio and like it or not, you know, it, it rings in your head and, and you bob in your head as you're doing chores or doing all sorts of other things. That hook done got Miriam, right? And, and she's leading the congregation of sopranos to remember and to cling. Uh, Matt Tucker is one of the, the pastors of the village and in and, and staff meeting this week as we're looking at this text, he said, what a sweet note to point to Miriam leading in song on, on this day, a day set aside to honor and celebrate women who, who faithfully lead and serve, um, pointing others to God's great works. And how cool is that, that we see this, this, this woman in, in just a subtle way expressing the joy that she has for the great work that God has done. And she leads the other women in the chorus. What a what a beautiful thing. She sings from the overflow of faith and her heart song is, look what the Lord has done. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. What's beautiful about this is in Revelation chapter 15. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. There's this section in there, and, and I encourage you to read it on your own. We're told that, that John, the revelator, he's taken up into the heavens, and he sees the angels doing some stuff, and they're worshiping, they're praising God, and, and there are these heavenly hosts around. He says they're singing the song of Moses. They're singing this song on the other side of, of all of death, losing its sting. Oh, death, where is your sting? On the other side of death's vile demand and grip when God has finally leveraged His, his, his victory, His power, and his, and his purpose, we see this future hope and this song being sung in the heavens. How beautiful is that? I want to go back to, to Psalm 106. There was a line that I left out, and, and I'm kind of closing out with this. 
Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. And just after that, you know what the psalmist says? He gives us a window into what happens after this. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. This is a a warning from the Psalms that man today, our faith might be full, that we might believe his words and sing his praise out of the overflow of our heart, but they soon forgot his works. And look, if we're not mindful, we too will soon forget. We too are drawn to forget the song of the Lord's great work to save us, the song that, that we might well hear the melody of in the new heavens and the new earth. So we get to evaluate the song of our heart. We get to feed it with what is true. We get to feed it with what God has done. We get to feed it with with who we are in Him. We get to feed that song of our heart with His greatness, with His victory, with His power, with His purpose. And look, you might get your news from, from having a strong meme game or, or your social media or, you know, or even great articles that you might read from, from respected people or, or podcasts, but to till the soil of the song of our heart. And all those things are great. We must read God's Word and we must meditate it, as the psalmist says, meditate on His Word day and night so that no matter what comes our way, no matter what comes out of our mouths in song or in frustration or in grumbling or in praise or encouragement or in delight, no matter what, we get to grow into the truth and and like a catchy hook that we can't shake. We get to let our heart's song sing. God alone is worthy of heartfelt response that sings His great name. Man, thank, thank you so much for spending this time with the scattered yet yet gathered in spirit church together. Would you continue to sing along with us as we sing, uh, as we reflect, repent, and respond. See you next time.